Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Sarah Bridal, Professor of Food, Climate and Society at the University of York. Sarah began her research career in astrophysics after achieving degrees in natural sciences and cosmology at the University of Cambridge. With a desire to address climate change, she now focuses on transforming food systems to benefit people and the planet. Sarah is an author of over 200 research publications and the book, Food and Climate Change Without the Hot Air, written for anyone curious about the relationship between food and climate change. She also set up the Take a Bite Out of Climate Change website to share knowledge and leads on metrics for the Fix Our Food project, seeking to transform the Yorkshire food system and beyond. So without further preamble from me, I welcome Sarah to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You are most welcome. So I'm going to begin with... Why astrophysics? How did that all come about? <laughs> well, I think with any passion, I think my question is, why not astrophysics? I just, I just thought it was really amazing that we can look into the sky and find out what was out there and to sort of imagine all these things going on so far away. And I guess all these basic questions of where does the universe, how did it begin and, and what, what's going to happen in the future? So, yeah, it just seems so natural to me to be asking those questions, really. And that could have been a limitless in terms of your career, you could have spent all of it on astrophysics and cosmology and all of those things that you you were looking at. So what changed? Well, I mean, I suppose, um, you know, it's a big project that I've been working on for probably, gosh, more than 10 years um, when we, we sort of produced the first results from that project, which is a huge sort of milestone for me and, and a, you know, a huge group of people that had been involved in that project. Um, and about the same time my kids started at school, um, and I started thinking about maybe the next 20 years of my career and I could imagine them saying to me, what did you do about climate change, mummy? And me saying, I looked at the stars and just feeling that that wasn't really good enough. Um, and I guess about the same time as well, um, a mentor of mine um, when I was a student, David Mackay, um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and, and died. And uh, I just spent a long time thinking about life and the meaning of life and what's what am I here how come I'm still here and he's not and um just how can I make something really you know more useful do something more useful so I started learning about climate change um, and you know um really I hadn't actually been that interested in the environment before I was more looking at other uh, outside of this planet and being quite shocked um at you know what's what we're doing basically and really shocked and fascinated by the large role that food plays in that. And it's just such a fascinating topic to me, food, that I really just got obsessed with it. So it sounds like a combination of life events all came together to make you think, aha, uh, maybe I need to take this um, elsewhere. Did you decide, right, I'm just going to throw myself completely into food and climate change? Or did you go, hang on a minute, I still love all the other stuff. Did, did you try and juggle or did you just take a leap? Yeah, I mean, I still had a lot of responsibilities in on the astrophysics side. So I was still teaching physics um, and I was still um, working partly on cosmology. But I 
just when I get obsessed by something I kind of get quite obsessed by it so it's not really a sort of logical choice it was just sort of I just would get up in the morning and be like great I can learn more about this amazing subject and just get really into trying to understand I I was just trying to work out what's the climate impact of what I ate what I eat Um, and that was just such a basic question to me I was googling it and expecting to find the answer and then realizing certainly at least five years ago that was not an easy thing to figure out um so I just was you know then I ended up reading hundreds of hundreds of research papers to try to understand the answer and like is that really you know where does that come from why is that number so big and just before I knew it then yeah it was just a bit of an obsession (laughs) well that's a good thing to have because that keeps you motivated and on it and trying to find the answers in terms of food then so I could see that you were just personally interested in food as well as all the science and everything but why do we need to worry about food and climate change well so they're interlinked in two sort of opposite ways so about one third of all climate change is caused by producing the food that we eat and and the sort of consumption so cooking and the waste and disposal of of unused food so you know that's a lot of climate change that's caused by food um it's bigger than the transport sector or the heating sector for example if you you group everything together under that food banner um but also food is impacted by climate change um so obviously climate change is about partly about global warming but but also the extreme weather events that are caused by global warming. Um, So, for example, the increasing number of droughts, um, heat waves, hurricanes, um, these kind of extreme weather events that can, and floods as well, of course, very much uh, as well in this country, quite relevant. And these can impact massively the amount of food that we can produce. And increasingly, those extreme weather events are happening on larger areas. So to do with the way that the poles are warming relative to the equator, we actually see that, for example, the whole of the northern hemisphere could end up with um, an extreme um, weather situation like um, a drought across a large number of areas that are all producing food. And so the potential for there to be a crisis in the amount of food we can produce just due to climate events alone, and of course there are other other events as well that could affect that now, um, it's it's a very serious problem. Yes, and it's it's quite complicated as well isn't it because as I imagine you found at the beginning of your starting where do I start and finish with this topic how did you decide on okay you was you were starting to look at a food was that the thing that you wanted in in terms of its individual impact was that where you started or is that where you ended up when you started looking at it well, I suppose at first I was reading about climate change and, you know, the various drivers of climate change. And I was actually managed to get to teach about the impact of different energy sources and use of energy on, on climate change. But for me, food is just such a fascinating one because it's so, as you say, it's so complicated um, and also so intertwined with our everyday lives and our experiences. And also it's exciting because it's something that we Uh, many of us are lucky enough to have that decision-making power about what we eat um, that it feels quite a tangible thing to talk about and I love talking to people about whatever I'm working on so for me that was also another draw to be working on food so I I kind of limited myself to thinking about the impact of food on climate change and try to understand how different foods and different ways of producing foods would impact on climate change so that that was my kind of obsession um really kept it focused on that but then i guess now i'm more working across the food system trying to understand about the impacts on health and the impacts on welfare and then you know how do we get a systemic change how do we get a transformation in the food system and what stakeholders and and policymakers do we need to talk to about that great 
you've covered quite a lot in there and I definitely want to come back to systems but I'm thinking in the in the first instance about okay at an individual level what sort of information did you come across that would make it easier for somebody to go okay I could go to my grocery store and and know that these are better in terms of climate change choices How, what did you what did you discover in that sort of uh, journey of science research First, when I started looking into it, then the first papers that I was, was reading were about the relative benefits of different types of diets. So looking at vegetarian, vegan versus sort of omnivore. Um, and, you know, it, it obviously depends massively on what you're eating within each of those diets. So it's, it's pretty hard to draw a kind of comparison. But what I learned was that, yeah, we, we can we can, you know, the less animal products on average, you know, averaging across all lots of many options tends to cause less climate change. Um, so I went vegan actually for a year and I, I think I probably stood uh, next to my uh, next to my oven with my jacket potato in the oven. I felt very smug about my my vegan jacket potato. I was probably unpacking my suitcase from a from a transatlantic flight from a cosmology trip. I probably popped to the shops in my fossil fueled car to buy some green beans flown in from Kenya. And, you know, I, I was causing more climate impacts by each of those, um, you know, actions than I would have been if I'd been having animal products. So. Unfortunately, it's a bit more complicated than just saying, um, you know, with or without animal products. But yeah, um, certainly there is a there is a difference and the animal products tend to cause more climate change. Um, so for a lot of people, it's going to be about maybe changing the quantities or the frequency of some of their most climate impactful foods, whatever that is for them. And certainly for a UK average, then it would tend to be animal products that would be the thing to focus on there. It's a really good starting point for somebody who's thinking, what can I do when they're shopping or when they're thinking about what they're going to eat each each night? You you then set about doing the book and website. I'm guess, guessing that was to make this information more accessible. And the book is 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 amazing. Anyone can pick that up and get you know lots of very accessible information from it. Great. Yeah, I suppose I just just felt like having put that time into understand it. I wanted to share that and sort of, you know, anybody that didn't have three years to spare <laughs> reading academic papers, then it'd be great if that was more accessible. Um, so, yeah, I think it's 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 nice when people can start to say, oh, I'd like to compare these two different things and start to see what what the numbers are. And certainly our experience and and the research shows that people sometimes get the ordering correct of like which causes more climate impact but they're quite shocked and underestimate the size of the difference between different types of food and how much they, they impact on climate change. What sort of things surprised you when you were doing the research, if, if any, or was it very much, oh yeah, I thought it was going to be like this? Yeah, I think there's certainly some myths around, um, around this. So for example, food miles and packaging, I would say, are the two that I often find are quite confusing uh, for people and certainly was stuff that I didn't know when I started. Yeah, we're often told eat local and that's going to you know, be really important for climate change. But actually, there's a there's an amazing book actually called How Bad Are Bananas uh, by Mike Berners-Lee. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but <laughs> the answer is not that bad. Um, so basically, if you uh, transport a banana uh, by boat from South America to the UK, for example, so across continents, um, then that the, the impact of transporting that banana is actually less than the impact of producing that banana in the first place. And all those numbers are relatively small. So um, it's not quite as simple as food miles, but it is still important. So, for example, if we actually air freight something instead of bringing it by boat, 
then that causes 100 times as much climate impact as bringing that same thing by boat. So then it starts to become in the same category as, as um, some of the lower impact animal products. Um, if you bring in, say, you know, 100 grams of beans um, from another continent by air versus having a piece of chicken. Yeah, and and that's it's great having some idea about that because we all want to make it very easy and simple to say these are the messages now just by local. But it, as you rightly say, it's not it's not uh, simple as that. Did you in terms of because getting people to to know when they go in their supermarket, it's hard to decide. Well, it has. How do I know if it's been on an aeroplane as opposed to a boat? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, difficult as a consumer to know. And I mean, as a rough rule of thumb, if it will keep in your fridge um, for, a, you know, for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, um, then it will probably be fine in the hold of a ship, really carefully controlled conditions with humidity and temperature really stable. Um, whereas if it's something that's going to go off quickly, like berries, um, green beans, um, sugar snap peas, um, so blueberries, strawberries, raspberries that have come from another continent, um, which, you know, is going to have to be coming by air. Um, but things like um, mangoes, for example, or pineapples, they could easily be in the hold of a boat. However, if they have been pre-cut, if they're all chopped up, that is probably going to have happened at the country of origin because the labour costs would be cheaper there. So it's not even as simple as what is the product. So I would love to see, you know, labels, you know, saying not air freighted on, on fruit and veg, for example, because how, how can we possibly know? It's really difficult. Yeah, it is. And because I, it's exacerbated by the fact that we're all used to seeing all of the fruit and veg available all year round. So you kind of, unless you're getting closer to the production, and many people aren't in the food business, <laughs> will we'll not go, oh, it's obviously in season now. Um, this must have come local. Uh, and then, uh, yes, you. I mean, you can look at where it's come from, but again, it's knowing, oh, is this a perishable item? So it is a, it's a tricky business, isn't it, with that whole, uh, again, messaging on eat local and also that seasonality. Because... I, I, what you can buy out of season for berries, for example, is is in a freezer. How does that how does that work? That's a great question. Yeah. So actually, you think of freezing, and you think, well, that's going to take energy to cool it down. Um, and then, if you're if it's a if it's a ready meal, for example, it might take energy to heat it up again. And presumably, berries you just defrost at room temperature, maybe. But um, but yeah, it actually turns out the amount of energy involved in in freezing it um, is not that huge. And certainly compared to air freighting something, it's really, really small. So it's definitely better to buy frozen berries than to buy air freighted berries. Um, and certainly, and often it's easier in terms of, you know, preparation and that. And then even <laughs> for, for some things actually um, frozen, it's actually less food waste. So that's another huge um, area we could talk about, which is that, you know, if it's in, if it's in the refrigerator in the supermarket, then there will be some things which are, you know, go off before their date. Um, just because of the way that we, we shop often people want to get the ones that you know go out of date later but that's also then leaves these on the shelf and we get food waste so that happens less again with frozen things so yeah freezing is, a, is actually is actually pretty good right okay and just on that point of food waste that's problematic across the the whole system isn't it um why is that well, yes, yeah, so globally about one third of food is lost or wasted. Um, and when you think about 30% of climate change coming from food, then that means that about so one, one third of 30%, 10% of all climate change is, is basically caused by food that we don't eat. 
um, which is kind of crazy. Um, so, and then, you know, where does that food waste happen? As you say, what causes that? Well, there's lots of different angles and depending on which country you're in, it might be more in the sort of fields or in the storage, uh, but actually in, in, the, in the countries like the UK, about 70% of food waste happens in the home. So that will be that, you know, that buy one, get one free, maybe um, on perishable items that we find that bag of salad at the bottom of the fridge a week later and it's not looking so good. And a really sort of fun fact about packaging as well, just to really maybe confuse it, but, you know, basically something like a cucumber if we buy a cucumber that without packaging, it will last for maybe two or three days in the fridge and then go bendy, as people might have discovered. But if actually it's in the plastic packaging, in just a very thin plastic uh, casing, it might last for two weeks. So we've got another sort of food waste angle there, which is um, uh, which I could talk a bit more about, about where we put that waste. Yeah, I mean, the, again, that as with all these things, you could quite easily go off into another direction about plastic and how you feel about plastic pollution. And then uh, um, as well as other plastic being important in, in various different packaging, you've got then if something comes in a can or it comes in cardboard. How did you find all that when you were working through it? Did you think, oh, there's a clear message on packaging? Because obviously it's it's not that straightforward. Yeah, definitely. It's not not very straightforward on packaging. I think that what, what tends to happen and you know, there's lots and lots of issues beyond climate change for all of these things that I'm talking about here. For example, local food production, many, many different reasons for thinking about local food production. But in terms of climate change and packaging, um, then um, if you take something like a, a small pint of milk that's in a plastic bottle, um, it's very visible to us when we finish that milk that there's a plastic carton left behind. But actually the climate impact of, of that plastic carton is about 1 20th so 5% of the total climate impact of that milk. So producing that milk causes a lot more climate change than the plastic packaging itself. So usually, especially for animal products, it's much more important what's inside the packaging than what the packaging itself is. If we look at other products, for example, like um, beans, um, then often coming in tin cans, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you're switching from an animal based product to a tin of beans in your meal, then the fact that it's in a tin can is it's really a small perturbation. You know, you're already doing you already reduced your climate impact by quite a lot, even if it's in a can. Um, so that's that's not such a big worry as, as I certainly thought it might be at first. Weaving in your own personal through this, um, did you you said you went vegan for a year? Did you then go, oh, hang on a minute, because you've got some what broader perspective. How do you not go a bit crazy every time you need to do a food shop? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm still working on that. But uh, <laughs> I think that uh, well, certainly having a, a, a list of, of options that everybody likes, that took a while to build that up to sort of explore different recipes and things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it can be quite overwhelming. Um, I pretty much shop online these days because going in the supermarket it takes me a long time to get out again. <laughs> so, so I think it can be difficult. And, and I'm not saying that it's, it's easy. And obviously, I'm a bit obsessive about this topic. So I'm hoping that I'm hoping that other people won't find it quite so um, exhausting. But uh, yeah, certainly, you know, just looking at what you what causes the most climate impact in your diet on a regular basis, rather than worrying about special occasions and, and you know, one off things, don't worry about those so much, but just something that you have regularly, um, just focus on those things. And maybe thinking about quantities um, is the best place to start, I would say. Excellent advice. So coming back to the whole systems issue, then, did that 
was that an expansion of where you wanted to go in terms of your research? How did that occur? Well, I think, you know, trying to answer some of your excellent questions, um, it just illustrates, doesn't it, how we could make a decision based on climate change, but that might not necessarily be the best decision for other reasons. Um, and so taking into account the health and the welfare um, and other issues about packaging and resilience of the food system to, to, to shocks that might cause us to need maybe more local food sometimes. Um, all of those things are interconnected and so you can't really sort of say we should do this that or the other unless you're looking at the whole system so it's kind of I guess a natural extension of wanting to help to, to really uh, make things better. And did that lead you to do the Fix Our Food project or get involved in that because that's obviously a huge project with lots of people in I imagine. Yeah so I think that um, you know I, I was chatting with some of these people over over a few years and uh, trying to understand how we could work together to, to make a difference. And the bit that I'm kind of obsessed with is, I guess, my background is in data analysis and trying to come up with models of how the universe works or about how the food system works uh, and trying to make those um, more accessible to people so they can sort of learn how different interventions might impact on different, different metrics, different outcomes. Um, so that was the bit that I was keen to, to work on. And that was a bit that they wanted to do inside Fix Our Food. So it sort of made great sense to work together on that. Um, so that's been absolutely brilliant to be able to connect with regenerative farmers, with um, schools, uh, with nurseries, on you know, and young people, but also that supply chain uh, side of how do we get from a farm to the plate um, and connect all across that food system. And now that you've sort of gathered, you, you, you kind of got this nice baseline of where all the, the carbon emissions are come from within the system. Where do you see the future going in terms of being able to cut that across across the system? Can, uh, how hopeful are you? <laughs> well, there's so many things, unfortunately, um, that are not great about our food system at the moment. Um, and if we take the example of health. Then we've got this obesity crisis, which is you know, causing type 2 diabetes. It's causing a National Health Service uh, problem, massive problem for the, the National Health Service. Um, so we've got, we've got these you know, very much health issues that we need to solve anyway. Um, we need to do something different with the way that we, we produce and, and you know, have the food environment set up for people to, to, to consume from. So I think that there is very much a rising sort of Kadir, very much an awareness of the need to transform the food system. And so to make sure that we've got all this data on the environmental impacts in those discussions and that when we, we try to transform, for example, to improve our health, then we're, we're doing that in a way that is for the environment as well. I do feel like that's something that, that is, is certainly start. The discussions are very much happening. And do you think actually these uh, interconnected problems can be can have a sort of yes they are interconnected but actually the way forward will merit them all that they'll all benefit uh, or do you think in some areas you're going to get sort of a juxtaposition where oh if I do this it'll improve climate change but it'll be really bad for biodiversity because we'll cut loads of forests down yeah that's a great question yeah so there are some some places where things are are, are working in, in opposition but not not so many I mean just to give one example um you know if we want to get enough calories uh, then you might think, oh, having lots of sugar would be a good idea. Um, and, you know, that's that's relatively, um, you know, that'd be a relatively efficient way to get lots of calories into our bodies, but obviously it'd be terrible um, in terms of our health. So there's things that, you know, maybe, um, but there's so there's so many win-wins that it's it's not really such a big, a big worry in my mind. And just following on with that land use, 
the way our land is sort of distributed and a fair bit of it goes to animal production, how, what does that look like now and how can you see um, that will change over time? Yeah, so we're really resource limited on this planet right now in terms of land that we have available to produce food. Um, and this is, you know, potentially even um, behind some of the sort of tensions that we see in the world. And that's only going to get worse as we have more people. But as you say, quite a large fraction of agricultural land is used to produce food for animals. Um, so overall, globally, it's about 80 percent of all agricultural land is used to produce food that's fed to animals um, and and using land to produce food. Um, animal animal products is about uses about 16 times as much land per calorie as if we're using that same land to produce plant-based products so there's a big difference and of course within that there's a huge difference between different ways of production but also different animal products for example so overall i mean just to give one extreme example if if the whole world went vegan those numbers i've just said mean that we could actually free up three quarters 75 percent of all agricultural land um, for other uses which could be used to, to help fix climate change uh, we'd have to we'd have to use slightly a little bit extra land to produce some of their plant calories to make up for the lack of animal calories but that I'm not suggesting we do that but the point is that there is a huge amount of potential here for different ways of producing food that could use less land sure and without making it sound like cows and sheep are the enemy because not everyone's going to cut it out just because they like, you know, they're used to eating meat. What is the upside of having ruminants on the land uh, providing us with a food source? Is there any? <laughs> so, yeah, so basically, um, I guess we're, we're talking about this because of all the commonly consumed foods, then beef and lamb cause the most climate impact per, per calorie or, or per calorie or per gram of protein or, or even per, per weight of, 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 of food. Um, and so, yeah, so basically about 5% of all the calories eaten by cows and sheep are burped out again as methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so, so you know, you might say, well, we've got lots of grass already. So, you know, it makes sense that we're, we're putting those, those animals on it. Um, and there's certainly a lot of um, biodiversity, so different insects and wildlife that thrive in those kind of areas. Um, so I don't think we need to be absolutist about this. But on the other hand, you know, it, it, it is also you know, true that maybe we couldn't use that particular pasture land. It wouldn't be suitable for growing crops. So that's another important factor. But at the same time, you know, we actually would need less land for agriculture if we were to switch our diets a little bit. And so we could be using that land, for example, for forests or for you know, other ways of capturing carbon, um, which help with climate change. So it's not quite as simple as just saying well the grass is there anyway we might as well put some some animals on it yes so and in essence what you're saying is we can put we can make use of that land in a much more positive way than than perhaps it's currently used yeah and I think again it's about quantity it's about scale mm. you know do we really need quite as much beef and lamb as we're currently producing and maybe some of the more intensive production methods you know that we don't necessarily have to have all of the things that we've currently got yeah and do you find when you're talking to people about food and the, the impacts it has on climate change, do, do, are people receptive to that? Do they think, oh, yeah, I can see where this is going and perhaps I need to change my diet? Or do people like, no, this is how I've always eaten. <laughs> I don't want to change my diet. I mean, I would, I would say I, I, I'm personally, you know, I, when I talk to an individual person, I'm not really trying to convert them into yeah. doing something because at the end of the day, I think 
we need the whole system to change, as we've said. Um, and so I think it's always really fascinating, you know, the many, many other considerations that each person has around food, about taste, about convenience, about cost, about whether their kids are going to eat it. Um, there's so many other factors that come in and obviously the health and the health side of things. So there's so many different factors we all have to consider when we're choosing food. And I guess I'm, I'm focusing on the climate impacts just because it's well, because it's obviously very important, but also it's relatively hard for people to find that information. People already know if they like the taste of a food. They already know if it costs too much. They already know about the nutrition if they want to look at those, those labels on the packet. So I just want people to also have access to that information on climate change um, so that they can factor that in if they want to. And I think that's the only way you can do it. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's 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 ideal because you're presenting the information in a, a way that people can then make an informed decision. But if they can't get access that information, then how can they possibly make an informed decision? Absolutely. And I think there are actually so many people who put a lot of effort into choosing what to eat, um, trying to do their best for their own health, but also welfare of other people, welfare of animals, what the environment People put a lot of some people put a lot of effort into that, um, but actually not always with the right information. So some surveys of you know what are you doing to help with climate change? Sometimes the top item in that survey is I'm reducing plastic use. It's like well, that's there's lots of reasons why you might do that, but actually in terms of solving climate change, I'm really sorry, but after all the effort you've put in to cutting out plastic out of your life, maybe we still actually need to solve climate change, um, and that's going to be another thing. So sometimes it's very difficult to know whether it's a big thing or a small thing when you're a consumer. Yeah, I, I think you make an excellent point there um, because lots of people have plastic on their radar. And yes, it has a, it definitely has a place, but it's not going to, as you say, solve everything um, for sure. So where do you hope that your research will go next? What sort of outcomes do you see from your own personal work? So really what we need to have is a national conversation around you know, getting more information about the quantitative impacts of different things, but taking into account different people's um, you know, conflicting interests. So if you're a food producer that's been producing food a certain way for many years, then you know, changing would be a massive uh, problem. Uh, in terms of you know what your livelihood is but also in terms of values you know some people have got very we've, we've all got very strongly held values around food about what we think is good and uh, maybe some people have got also very strong values around their role in society for example uh, a farmer who's producing food for the, their country that's a very strongly held value which you know is, is we wouldn't have the food without it so um, we, we need to really factor all of these things in along with the facts about how different things impact our health, welfare and, and, and the environment. So, you know, it's not for a scientist to sit in an ivory tower and say, this is the answer. It's actually to have that national conversation. And really, I would, you know, if we look at plastic, um, as we were discussing a moment ago, you know, look what's happened in five years with plastic. You know, it's really been a massive change in, in public opinion about plastic. Um, and now, you know, food producers, governments, um, uh, supermarkets are falling over themselves to tout their amazing, uh, you know, or their, their amazing uh, plastic-friendly uh, policies, um, you know, for better or worse in some cases. But actually, how do we get that same step change in public opinion around 
food and policies, for example, that would change the pricing of food, uh, maybe to, to cost more for the, the products which are affecting the environment more, and maybe to subsidise some of the healthy products which are not affecting the environment uh, so much. So, you know, how could we get that in? Um, at the moment, it feels like a politically toxic thing for a politician to stand up and say they're going to change the pricing of food so that it's better for the environment or people's health. But we actually need that to happen. And, and if, if the consumers and citizens could could be really pushing for that um, in the same way they're pushing about plastics, I think that would be the dream. Um, I don't know how to get there, but that's, I think, what we need. Yeah, so it's in, in summary, what you're saying to me is we need that consumer pressure to put on the government to make tough tough choices about food so Absolutely. that we get it more across the board rather than individuals going oh I, th I think I'd like to be do something about my food and how can I help that way we need it as you say a, 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 a broader broader look at it yeah, absolutely. And I get sometimes um, when I'm giving talks and that sort of thing, I get somebody saying, oh, I'm already, you know, I'm already vegan. I'm already not buying any food, you know, from outside the UK. I'm already, you know, baking 100 jacket potatoes at once and then freezing 99. Uh, you know, lots of things that they might be doing. You know, what else can I do? And I'm sort of like, gosh, you know, <laughs> uh, that's a lot of things you're doing. Um, you know, actually, you're probably already, you know, really low in terms of your climate impact of your food. And actually to go any lower would be incredibly hard work, but also not make as big a difference as if you talk to somebody else about it and reduce their climate impact of their food by just 10%. Um, so in terms of the numbers, uh, sometimes it's actually partly about, you know, discussing with other people or trying to get this onto the radar of, of institutions like your canteen. Um, you know, where do you get your food? How do they present it? What, what are the sort of stimuli in the environment you're in which lead you to eat particular types of food? And how can we change that? And I think that's quite, again, that's quite accessible in that we all eat. And we all quite often share food with others. So it's a nice place to be able to talk about these quite heavy discussions, uh, but in a, in a relatively positive way. Do you, you come across as a very optimistic and collaborative type of person. Uh, have there been any moments in your discovery of the research where you've thought, oh, this, is, this isn't great. This is really quite scary stuff. Or are you just... Well, how, how do you how do you manage the data emotionally? Yeah, I think it is tough. Look, I mean, you know, I changed field largely because I was so shocked by how worrying climate change is. And, you know, things have changed in terms of the way that people think about climate change. There's a lot more awareness of it. Certainly there was a big growing movement uh, maybe before COVID happened about climate change. We got a bit busy with COVID and now maybe we're a bit busy with other things right now as well um, but yeah there is has been a big change in public opinion a big change in awareness certainly in terms of actual policies and actual changes that are really gonna stop the worst parts of climate change I think we're still needing a lot more there so yeah some days um, I'm less optimistic than others um, but I think what I the, the concept that I find very helpful is is build back better so this idea that you know sometimes things have to get worse before they get better um, and so being ready there with the solutions that we can bring in when there have been a problem, for example, you know, something like the shocks in the last couple of years with, with um, COVID and the supply chain issues we've had, and maybe with the war um, in Ukraine, you know, it's, it's, it's causing massive problems 
Um, but at the same time, there's also opportunities to then be ready with solutions which are going to be better. So I think, you know, even on a pessimistic day, I still believe in working to be ready with solutions to build back better when, you know, when there are big problems that do arise. And then finally, Sarah, through your work, has it altered other things other than the way you shop or eat? Has it altered other things within your personal life? just because you've gathered more knowledge about the current world we live in? Um, gosh, yes, where to begin, let me think. Um, well, certainly I haven't flown in a plane um, since I first learned about climate change. Um, you know, for most people, one transatlantic flight a year would cause more climate change than all the food that, that they ate in that year. So um, certainly there's no point sort of worrying too much about what you're eating if you're taking a lot of flights, as I used to as part of my job in, in cosmology. So I feel like I need to do penance for that. Um, but also um, certainly in the way that, um, that the heating, that you know, we have the thermostat lower than we used to have at home. We've had various bits of insulation. Um, so, yeah, the way that the way that we heat our house, that's a that's a big one for a lot of people as well. That'll be a lot of their climate footprint will come from the way that they heat their houses and the amount of insulation, of course, that, that, that they've got. Great. That, thank you so much, Sarah. It's It's been a pleasure to hear about your your journey through this um, this change in your life and on all the knowledge that you've gained and have uh, shared some of it today with me. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you. I so enjoyed talking with Sarah about the impacts of food on climate change. Food concerns us all and it's essential for us to know the facts so we can make informed choices. Sarah's done all the hard work for us and I absolutely recommend taking a look at her book as she provides the facts in an easily digestible format and its digital version is free. It provides details on many of the points covered in our conversation, explaining why food from animals, particularly beef and sheep, carry the highest impact, how food miles aren't necessarily bad if delivery is by a boat, and when frozen foods are a good substitute for fresh foods. Links to the book and Sarah can be found in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you, of course, for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to get automatic access to each new episode and it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share the podcast too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.